Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Jesus, thanks uh, for this chance to get to be here this morning uh, with the body at Stockwell. Um, Lord, would you, uh, whatever it is that you intend to say through me, however you want to say it, Lord, would you uh, speak to our hearts this morning? And Father, I don't know how people are coming in. Um, Maybe you're curious about Jesus. Maybe you already know him. Lord, whatever it is that we walk in with this morning, would you meet us as you want to meet us? And I just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, I'm Nicole from the video. Um, I know, it was a little embarrassing. I was like, let's just play the video. It's a lot more fun than maybe what, now, what I'm going to say is going to be fun, but in a different, less don't set me up with random strangers kind of way. Um, my name is Nicole Lewis, and uh, as you can tell from my accident, my accent, I mean not my accident, um, I'm from Bermondsey, um, by way of the United States of America. And um, yeah, give it up. I won't chant. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I'm originally from Oregon. Have um, I work for a Christian charity called Agape UK. That's how I got here. I've been with them 22 years full time. Um, have worked kind of all over the world with students, um, university students. And so, um, yeah, I just got indefinite leave to remain. Woohoo! So very excited about that. But this morning, I have the honor to be with you to start off um, our series called uh, Jesus the King. And it's a series we're going to be doing as a church over Easter to look at Jesus in the lead up to Easter, to his resurrection, and to understand the revolutionary, revolutionary power of the resurrection in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I feel particularly in this moment of history in which we're living, it's a great reminder and really good for our souls to just look at Jesus. Jesus, the king of a better kingdom than the one we live in now. I think, I don't know if you need it, but I think I need that reminder of this kingdom um, of love, of mercy, and justice that we all get to be invited to be a part of. So today we're going to be looking at Jesus, the king of the feast, the feast being Passover. But many of us, if you've been in church for a while, think of it as the Last Supper, but it's actually Passover. Um, Many of you may recognize this painting, which is about to go up on the screen. Um, It's from a good friend of mine when I lived in Italy, Leonardo da Vinci. He's from Vinci. That's why his name is Da Vinci, just in case you're wondering. Um, It's one of the most iconic paintings in the world. And on Monday, I I went out to uh, St. Albans Cathedral to see a reimagining of this painting that was actually painted in 2009, but then it was put on display in St. Albans Cathedral in 2020 after George Floyd was killed. And the artist Lorna Mae Wadsworth actually had a Jamaican model portraying Jesus in the painting. When I went to the cathedral, um, I found a tour guide and said, hey, do you know where the, the painting is of the Last Supper? And he kindly took me over there. And he was just telling me, you know, this painting has had a really great impact here in our church. And he said there was a gentleman who came to see the painting. Um, and he is part of, or was, is part of the Windrush generation. And he said the man stood in front of the painting with tears just streaming down his face. And he said, this is the first time I've ever seen myself in a painting. 
And I think what that man said is, one, an incredibly profound statement about the impact of representation in art, but also very insightful into the story we're going to be looking at today. This is the Last Supper, the last meal Jesus will share with his disciples before his death. And as they sit at the table, I think we too are also invited to see ourselves inside this story, inside this painting, as those who've been invited ourselves to the table. As the chorus of one of my favorite songs from uni said, everyone's invited to the circle. Come on in, and if you do, bring a friend. So let's look at our passage today. This is found in Mark 12 through, or 14, 12 through 25. I'm going to try and read it from my Kindle. We shall see how that goes. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat this Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him, not in a creepy way, follow him. That's not in there, but just to give you some context. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when they had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Passover, that first timestamp that Mark gives us is really notable. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus has his disciples prepare a place for them to eat the Passover meal together. N.T. Wright, in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, says this is very um, important and significant that Jesus chooses, or that God actually chooses Passover as the time in which he will fulfill his purposes in Jesus. There are many other uh, holy festivals throughout the Jewish calendar. Yom Kippur, for example, the Day of Atonement, when they sacrifice to pay for the sin of the nation. He could have chose that, but he chooses Passover instead. Passover was symbolic in the Jewish mind of freedom. This is the backdrop into which this story is said. On the night the nation of Israel looks back and remembers to God's deliverance of them from the oppression of Pharaoh, Jesus the King, God in flesh, is soon to bring about a better liberation in which we can be both fully forgiven and fully free. And this is where the story is set. Now, Jesus seems to have this all planned out. He tells his disciples, go into Jerusalem, find this man carrying a water jar. 
Now, you have to know, at the time of Passover, Jerusalem was about six times its normal size because everyone had come to celebrate. So how you find a man carrying a water jar when the city is heaving with people, to me, seems a little strange. But I learned something in studying this. At that time, it would have been uncommon for a man to carry a water jar. Women carried water jars, men carried something else. So actually, he was pretty easy to find in that city. And so they follow him to the house. Um, and as you notice, when they get there, the, the master of the house does not seem really surprised by Jesus' request, which probably means this man has become at some point a follower of Jesus himself, maybe even a secret disciple. And he has a place ready for them. And I don't know if this has any connection or not, but if you go and read the story of this meal in John's account, one of the things Jesus says to his disciples is, I'm going away, and they all are like, no, don't leave us. Um, they don't say it like that, but that's how I imagine they would have said it. Um, and Jesus says, "Where I'm going to the Father's house. There are many rooms there. Don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I just think it's kind of cool that Jesus has prepared one place for them now, He's going to prepare another. And so maybe that gave them confidence in this, what probably seemed like a crazy plan of his. Then as they sit to eat, Jesus makes a very shocking announcement. That someone who has been with him for three years, someone who has heard him teach, has seen him do miracles, has watched him heal people, multiply bread and fish, someone who has been with him among the twelve, was now going to betray him. And you notice everyone's like freaking out. Oh my gosh, is it me? Is it me? I don't know. Is it you, Peter? It's probably you, you know? Stuff like that. Um, and in da Vinci's painting, actually the moment of tension that he's trying to capture is this moment here where Jesus points out that he is going to be betrayed. That one of his very own will betray him. And this one, we famously know, his name was Judas a man who now lives in infamy as the betrayer of people. You know, if someone calls you Judas, they basically mean you're, you're a betrayer. You can't be trusted. You would stab me in the back and sell your soul for 30 pieces of silver. That's what it means to be Judas. But here's what I find really interesting, and we're going to come back to this. Even though Jesus knows it's not a surprise to him that it's going to be Judas, this was actually prophesied many years before, he is still sat at the table, having a meal with Jesus. He doesn't take the offer back. He doesn't disinvite him from the meal. He's sitting there eating with Jesus and about to betray him at the same time. And within that culture, you know, to eat a meal with a friend and then betray them was considered like the worst kind of treachery that you could do. But he's there. And one commentary I read said, said that in Jesus' warning we actually see a profound love for Judas. This was his last fleeting opportunity to turn back from his evil plot. Then Jesus does something that probably the disciples weren't anticipating at that point. He takes a meal which they have been celebrating since they were children every year, and he reinterprets the meaning to point to himself. As I said, the narrative, um, this whole story is grounded in the Passover, and that is very significant. And here we see Jesus eating the Passover meal with his disciples. It's so symbolic, again, because for the Jewish people, it's a reminder of God's deliverance of them from slavery. But it still speaks 
even in itself, to a final deliverance that they were eagerly waiting for, that they continue to wait for even today. And these two elements of bread and wine were only part of the meal um, that they would have eaten, but they're the parts of the meal that we celebrate once a month as we gather as a church in communion. And in doing so, we remember what Jesus has done, and we remember the better liberation that he promised us. The whole meal is really incredibly rich. Um, If you want a fun thing to do over Easter, I think it would be fun. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a Passover meal before or a Messianic Passover meal, but there's a ministry called Chosen People Ministries, and they have a video online called The Messiah in the Passover, and it explains the whole meal, the things that everyone eats, and how those things symbolically point to Jesus. So maybe in the lead up to Easter, that might be something that you want to check out. And if I had done that as a talk, that would have been the entire talk. So I'm not. Go look at the video. It's great. But when he picks up the bread, the afikomen, and the cup of wine, which was the third of four cups in the meal, this was known as the cup of redemption. That's what the third cup is. It's the cup of redemption. The cup that celebrates God buying his people back, freeing them. Jesus picked up these two things in the meal, and he reinterprets them for his disciples. He he speaks um, of these things, the bread and wine, as representing his very life, which he is about to give for them, and not only for them, for the whole world, for us here this morning. And in giving his life, he makes a new covenant with them, a a new contract with them, which we actually read about many years before this in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, which I think is coming back on the screen, where he says, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their sins and their wickedness. I will remember no more. This is the promise of new relationship with God, a relationship in which we can know God and be known by him, a relationship in which our sin is actually fully forgiven. And then they end the evening by singing uh, a psalm, which are part of the halal psalm. You still sing them today in Passover, Psalm 115 to 118. Um, And even though I know it's tradition to do it, I just think it's really beautiful that as Jesus kind of sets his face toward doing what God has intended for him to do, he's leading up to the whole purpose that he came, that he moves into that moment in worship. So um, I think there is something incredibly powerful about seeing yourself represented in a painting. It gives you something you can identify with. It draws you into the moment. It can move you to tears like the man who stood in front of that painting in St. Albans, seeing a representation of himself. Uh, When I lived in Italy, I um, have a really good friend who 
was, well, she, she was really good friends with a woman who's now my friend. You know how that goes. Um, but this friend of mine was, uh, she's an incredible portrait painter. And she asked me to sit for a painting um, for her, which I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be in a portrait. Um, it was an incredible, incredible experience. Took 36 hours of sitting there. Um, if you don't like being stared at, you will not like being stared at for 36 hours. It doesn't make that experience better. Um, only heightens all your anxieties and insecurities, and you're like, oh, the zits, my tan line. Um, but I mean, to, to see yourself in a painting, like when I looked at this, I thought, that looks just like me. I mean, she's, she's really that good, but like, I mean... If you, saw it, if you saw it on the street and you saw me walking on the street, you would know that that was me. Like, there was no way that you couldn't know that. Anyway, really amazing. But my point is, when you see yourself in something, it's really powerful. And I think that experience that that man had standing in front of the painting is the same experience I think that we can have when we look into the heart of the story. We're to be swept up in this painting to see ourselves as the very people also seated at that table with Jesus. Invited to a feast, not on our own merit. We did not get there, on our, get there on our own. It has nothing to do with us. But by the grace of God, extended through Jesus toward us in abundant measure. We're all invited because Jesus, through his death and resu- resurrection, reconciles or restores us to relationship with God. He's opened a new way for us to know him and to be known by him. As the new covenant says, it's a relationship in which God's law is then written on our hearts and on our minds. And it's a a relationship that transforms us internally into the new people of God. And that thing, our brokenness and our rebellion, which the Bible calls sin, is the very thing in which Jesus going to the cross and rising from the dead has destroyed completely forever. And because of that, all may now come and eat at the table. All may now come. I think another layer to this painting that da Vinci doesn't capture, but, you know, I won't trash him too much on that point. He was just, I don't know, he really liked Judas, apparently. So I don't know what that says about his psychology. It probably says something what most of us say, kind of how we see ourselves sometimes. But I think another um, layer to this painting, again, in the ancient Near East, in that culture at that time, when you shared a meal with someone, it was more than just having food. It was more than just mere hospitality. It was actually an offer of friendship. It was an offer of relationship with people. And, you know, again, turning back to the story, let's look at who Jesus is offering relationship to. Judas still sat at that table the one who's about to betray him. Peter, my personal favorite disciple. I don't know if you're supposed to vote for favorite disciples, but he's mine. Like, he's kind of, you know, no filter, like spontaneous, brings a sword to a prayer meeting. Um, Really loves Jesus, though. Really loves Jesus. Um, You got Peter, um, who's about to deny him. You have Thomas, who probably did many other things, but we only think about him as the guy who is doubting all the time, doubting Thomas. You have John. Um, I love this about John. In his story of Jesus' life, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loves. Never once mentions himself by name. And it seems kind of arrogant, um, but I agree with a friend of mine who has studied John a lot that I think what happened was that when God loved him, when Jesus chose him and he realized that that meant that God loved him, he never got over that fact. 
He never got over it. He never got over it so much. That's all he can say about himself. I'm the one that Jesus loves. Not I'm the best. Not Jesus loves me the most. But I can't even believe that he loves me. So John's there. You have a zealous political activist, um, a tax collector who was known as a traitor by his own people for working um, for the Roman uh, you know, oppressors. He's, he sat there. There were many others. This was Jesus' crowd who he chose to hang with. This is very important. At the time of Jesus, often disciples chose the teacher they wanted to follow. Jesus was different. He chose the people to follow him. This was his choice. They didn't just show up. He, I mean, later other people showed up, but the 12, um, the 12 were chosen by Jesus. They did not choose him. He chose them. And I think that is incredibly important for us to remember. He chose and invited them into relationship. We are, you are the people that God is also inviting into relationship. And I think probably each of us could find someone in the 12 we identify with. Like I said, Peter and I were pretty tight. Um, And I think that's the point of the people he chose. I think he chose them intentionally so that we would see ourselves represented in that group and things that people we could actually identify with. And I think we're supposed to look at them and to look at this story slash painting and have confidence in God's love for us. But I think it also says a lot about the family of God, how God kind of draws the boundary lines around family, sometimes different than maybe we might do them as we decide kind of who's in and who is out. Maybe that boundary line we even draw on ourselves and kind of decide that, you know, even though God is really good, could he be really good enough to love me? And we could maybe exclude ourselves from that. But everyone has been invited to the table. Now, I'm going to repeat myself. Uh, Sorry about that. But I just want to make sure that we don't miss this. The table stands ready for all. The table stands ready for all. No matter who you are, your background, whether you think you're a person God could love or not, the host is the key to all of this. The host is the most important part of the painting. Jesus, and he is the one that they called the friend of sinners, the outcast, the friend of the humble, the friend of the, one who, the ones who don't belong. This is his feast, his feast, and it is both abundant and incredibly generous. So when we as a church come together each month then to celebrate communion by sharing juice or maybe wine and also bread, we call this moment to mind when Jesus opens up a new way for us to be in relationship with God. Where there are not insiders and outsiders, because all of us, all of us in this room, because of our own wrongdoing or sin, stand equally in need of what Jesus has done, equally in need of what he's done. And because of that, each of us has an invitation to be at the table if we are only willing to come and to eat. In communion, we we look back at what Jesus has done for us, the offer to be free, but we also look forward to celebrating again with him anew in the kingdom of God when we will sit at a table with people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and we will celebrate him together. So how should this impact the life of the church? What would this painting look like if this was Christ Church, London? 
I think the painting would show people being invited to the table, to be seen, a community that wants to invite others to the table. I think we would be the good news of Jesus, and I think we would tell the good news of Jesus. We will want people to feel welcome on Sunday morning, obviously, to Christ Church London, but to know that they are welcome to so much more than just Christ Church London, that they are actually welcome to the family of God, of which Christ Church London is merely a reflection. I think the painting would reflect what we will experience one day when Jesus returns, a community of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. People would see themselves represented in our community. They would see people who live in relationship with God. They would see people who live in relationship that isn't Christian performance. It's not just doing things and performing as a Christian. It's a relationship um, in which people are living out dependence upon Jesus and his Holy Spirit in everyday life, in the ordinary and in the extraordinary. I think the painting would also show a community that keeps company with Jesus. I love that phrase. I heard it a while back, and I just thought, yeah, that's what I want. I want to keep company with Jesus. Um, You know, just bringing him into our everyday life, talking to him about everything that's going on, the hard and the good, and trusting that his love for us will actually never run dry. We would be people who, even though the culture has many good things that it can give to satisfy us, know that it will never satisfy us more than Jesus can. It is good what what is in the world around us, but he is so much better. He is so much better. So I don't know what God wanted to say to you this morning. I don't know what he has said to you this morning. But I hope that whatever it is, like Mary, you would treasure it in your heart and take it this week and think about it and think about it during the Easter season. And I just want to end with this. I just have a couple questions that I thought of that maybe you could reflect on um, during Easter that could be helpful. So first, maybe you're here uh, this morning And maybe the question to ask yourself over Easter is, do I want to sit at the table? Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never said, yes, Jesus, I'm in. I would like to sit at the table with you. So that's the question I would challenge. I don't like that word challenge, but I can't think of a better one right now. That I would challenge you to ask yourself, are you willing to uh, say yes to the life that God wants to offer you? I think another question would be this. Um, How can I make an opportunity for others to be invited to the table? What does God, or what's the role that God is asking me to play in this? How can I make opportunity for others to be invited to the table? What's my role in that, God? What do you want it to be? And finally, maybe your question could be this. Jesus, I really want to keep company with you. I really love doing that, but how do I do that in this season in my life? You know, it's, it's busy, you know, we're post-pandemic, now everything's crazy again, whatever, fill in the blank. The desire is there, but your schedule is not working together with your desire, which happens to me three quarters of my year. So how do you do that? How do you keep company with Jesus in the midst of that? Maybe that's the question that you should ask him. So, um, yeah, that's, I, I write terrible endings. So my ending is, I'm done. That's the end. <laughs> Of what I want to say, Lars, let me pray. (laughs) Jesus, thank you for having a table 
that we can all sit at. Thanks for making a feast, and thanks for giving artists creativity to paint that feast so we could see ourselves as people who have been invited to sit at the table. What an incredible blessing and honor. And Lord, I pray that you would move past all of our doubt and all of our fear and all of our anxiety and just give us, through your spirit, just hearts that long to keep company with you. And I just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.